Welcome to the Review Name Podcast. I am, as always, Jordan. This week on the show, we're going to do a news roundup. We're going to talk about how the season of Girls has been progressing, and we're going to return to the Review Name Movie Club and discuss The Killer Inside Me. So stick with us throughout the hour. Uh, with me tonight, I have Sam. Hello. Alex. Hello. And Chris. Yo. So stick with us, and we will talk about things that will hopefully interest you. Um, why don't we go ahead and start off? What a pitch. With yeah, it's gonna be an okay show, guys. I'm be sold awesome. on that. <laughs> I'm excited about this show. I like the stuff we're talking about. Yeah, I think I actually think it's gonna be a good one. Uh, that was that was sarcasm. Hopefully, it's always a good show. Yeah, I mean, usually this is just shit. Yeah, usually the podcast is terrible, but this time we're really gonna try and not fuck it up for you guys. So hopefully, you'll enjoy that. Um, I'm going to kick off the news roundup this week and engage in my second straight podcast of NBC bashing. So uh, as I was saying to my uh, fellow podcasters before, basically I'm picking up the uh, the torch from 30 Rock now, and uh, I'll be the pop culture institution that is mocking NBC and its uh, continued downfall. But NBC announced this week that uh, Brian Fuller's new show, Hannibal, uh, will be premiering on April 4th in the slot that's been vacated by Do No Harm. Uh, for those of you who are unfamiliar, Hannibal will tell the story of the, uh, not not early life necessarily, but the pre-Silence uh, of the Lambs life of Dr. Hannibal Lecter when he is investigating cases with uh, Will Graham, his FBI agent friend, who was Edward Norton in Red Dragon. Um, so basically, that's going to be a show. On the one hand, that sounds like a terrible idea for a television program to me. <laughs> On the other, uh, Brian Fuller of Pushing Daisies, uh, Wonderfalls, and other shows that we kind of like fame. Um, Dead Like Me as well. That's another one off the top of my head. Um, Brian Fuller does things I like, and he is behind the show. Mads Mikkelsen uh, of being the chief in the Casino Royale uh, fame, and Hugh Dancy will be playing Will Graham. Mads Mikkelsen will be playing Lecter. I'm just babbling now. but um, So it's got, like, it's got a decent cast. Uh, it's got someone I, I quite like behind the camera running things. Um, and it's got a premise that I think is like a terrible idea for a TV show. So I'm deeply torn on how I think this is going to go, but I'm definitely going to be watching it. Um, what about the rest of you? Sam, what do you think about any of this? I, I am just, do no harm. Is that the one with the split personality guy? Jekyll Hyde. Yeah. The, the doctor. Fa- failed. How are they able to like, <laughs> is there something wrong that if this was the show waiting to replace the show, like that do no harm was gone after what, two episodes? I feel like sometimes in television, they just know a show's going to fail and decide to do it anyway, which is strange. Um, but NBC, especially in the last few years, you know, they've had a lot of shows that they pull, they hold for mid-season, which means they like they know a lot of their programming slate's going to fail. And sometimes they have shows that are just waiting in the wings for when something fails immediately. Well, let me just say I am devastated that Do No Harm is gone. It was your favorite TV show? Well, it was my favorite TV show I've never seen before, so I can't say how horrible it was for sure. I just, but I can I wanna... say, why can't he just check himself into an institution? <laughs> he knows he's crazy. Who, who he blacks out and then buys boats. He knows who, he's crazy. Who starred in that show? Uh, the guy from Rescue Me. That's not the the best thing to come out of that show was that promo where he's just looking directly into the camera. Oh, that he looks and like just so unenthusiastically. <laughs> let's have some fun. I like it when he's like looking and then like a shadow goes over his face and then he looks mean. I like Stephen yeah. uh, Stephen Pasquale, who 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 I I liked on Rescue Me a lot. 
I um, liked the promo for Do No Harm when he was like, uh, it's like, he's dangerous. And then he's like, he's right. And I'm like, oh, man, he's so much edgier than the guy that was just talking. <laughs> That's what I thought every time. Anyway, well, Hannibal. Anyway, uh, Hannibal. Great show. Going to be coming from someone who I quite like and whose television shows I usually enjoy. Um, going to have a cast that I think is interesting, to say the least, and possibly even really good. But is also going to be a Hannibal Lecter TV show. Um, Sam, thoughts on this? Well, I, 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 talking about Hannibal now. That was my my eulogy for Do No Harm. <laughs> um, I, I think this is about as necessary as Bates Motel. I mean, do we need this? And I think uh, the thing is, I've only seen Silence of the Lambs. I didn't see uh, Red Dragon or Hannibal. Don't forget Manhunter. Um, Manhunter is like Manhunter was the original Red Dragon um, in the 80s before Silence of the Lambs, and then they did Red oh. Dragon because they were like people will keep seeing movies with Anthony Hopkins as Hannibal Lecter, which is right. true because I did. Um, but from <laughs> what I understand, Jordan, you can tell me they were the, the, the subsequent sequels weren't that great. Um, no, and yeah, Alex, that was what I mean. Red Dragon was a remake of Manhunter with Anthony Hopkins. Oh, okay, gotcha. Um, um, and yeah, Sam, that's correct. Silence so of the Lambs I'm, I'm is just like, thinking like. Are we going to want to dig deeper into this character? It's it's proven maybe not to work so well or maybe not such a necessary place. I mentioned the movie a few years back that did the uh, like the early years of Hannibal Lecter, like his first killing or whatever. Um, I don't even remember what it was called, uh, but it was bad. I saw it. Um, and Hannibal's it was Big Day. That's what it was, right? Yeah. Ha- big Hannibal's Day Out. <laughs> also, isn't there a problem with this? the series in itself that if this is following a young Hannibal Lecter, we know that there is absolutely zero drama in his being caught for being the killer. He is. Well, I, I was under there the be impression that I, I, I was under the impression that this is going to be similar. And this is the worst analogy I can possibly make here. Um, preface. Great preface. Yeah. Preface. Uh, this is like, there, there's been a trend in TV recently of prequel shows that aren't necessarily actual prequels to the things that they are technically taking place before. Like it it is the character that you like from this thing, but this is like a new timeline for them. Star Trekking it for lack of a better term. I think the most recent Star Trek television shows stayed on the timeline. Well, I mean what the Star Trek movie did for the Star Trek continuity, some other things like for, for instance, I think, uh, the, the Sex in the City prequel, The Carrie Diaries, is well, like I, I read. That's, I was reading, that's fucking canon. Watch your mouth. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. It, it, this is what blew my mind about. Like I, I read somewhere that the show. I, I've never seen Sex in the City or whatever, but it apparently this uh, prequel stars um, Sarah Jessica Parker's character, but will not have any effect on her life. Like that, you, that fans of the show saw. Like this what's, is just a new start for this character. What's confusing to me is that this show takes place in the '80s, right? It's like 20 years before Second City takes place. I, I so suppose, like I don't yeah. think that I don't think that Carrie Diaries could possibly have any dramatic effects on Sex and the City because like there aren't well, any, really any stakes to Sex and the City. Like we yeah. know eventually she will be in her 30s living in New York City. That's, <laughs> but that, that's what know. I'm saying. Oh my god, like, the horrible truth. <laughs> you don't know anymore because it's like it's a it's a divergent timeline. That and that's, that was my impression that this I, – I'd read somewhere that I thought this was going to be the same way. Like, it is a prequel, but things aren't necessarily going to end up the way we saw them in the movie. I don't mind if they end up the way that they are in the the Hannibal canon, which is that Will Graham, who is played by Hugh Dancy in the TV show, is the guy who partners with Lecter to investigate cases and eventually catches him as a cannibal. 
Yeah. Um, and like, I think that's fine. I don't mind that being uh, the template for the show. I don't like. I still don't think we need to show it, Sam. I think you're exactly right. But if we are going to have a show, I think there's some dramatic tension in the idea that you know eventually this is the guy that brings down Hannibal. Um, but of course, eventually is okay when. Although I could see, you know, I could see the show going into Hannibal in captivity territory because. Basically, uh, what it would do at that point, I think, is become a procedural version of Sansa the Lambs, which is, like, they come, Hannibal helps them solve the murder from behind bars, and then they just, like, like back house. on So I could see all of this happening. I don't, I don't see it happening in a way that I think will be a good television show. Um, but then again, like I said, Brian Fuller is doing it, and I'm kind of willing to give him some leeway. Like, had his Adams Family, uh, or not Adams Family, Munster show... How dare uh, you, sir. Gotten, ...gotten past its uh, pilot that I did end up watching because it was only, like, a, a TV special. Um, I would have watched that show, you know? And I don't, I don't think we need a new Munster show either, but I would have watched it because I think Fuller's interesting. Yeah, um, but the thing is, I mean, this is now... It's like a crazy comparison we're going down now. <laughs> but this, the Munster show was not a prequel to the Munsters. It was a reimagining. No, I know. So, so in that, I, this is like insane that we're talking about this. But uh, <laughs> if they were like, I think it would it would somehow make more sense if like the Hannibal show was, I mean the Hannibal story is kind of wrapped up at this point, right? But well, it, I feel it's not wrapped up. Okay. There's he always fed a lot, uh, he fed a child brains. That's the last thing we saw of him, right? Um, yeah, that's the last thing we saw in the movie. In the books, it's it's the book Hannibal is actually better, and I I think Thomas Harris is not yeah, a very good the reader. book's better. No, I actually I think Sarah's is not a very good writer, and the movie version of Sounds of the Lambs is way better. But the ending of the of Hannibal, the book, is way better than the ending of the movie. I'll just say. Um, I'm, I'm not saying you should read the book because neither is very good, but <laughs> but the ending is way better. But yes, I, uh, I feel like there's a difference between a prequel and just reimagining because I feel like it gives you more freedom to start fresh and do wildly different things and not be beholden to a story necessarily. Have they gone on record and said which one it is? They haven't. Um, I mean, it, they, they place it as within this period of Lecter's history, which leads me to believe that it is considered a prequel. Um, just because, you know, it's, you know, it's, it's the premise of it is it takes place during this time when he's paired with his FBI agent. But they're kind of giving themselves a way out to say, no, 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 wait. Yeah. I, think, in, yeah. In, I guess. <laughs> We never said it was taking place in the same timeline. That's what I imagine Brian Fuller sounds like. <laughs> yeah, there'll be a probably right around the time it diverges, like season three or four, he'll just come on screen and say exactly that, Alex. I can't Brian wait. Like walks out. First of all, the idea of a Brian Fuller show making it to season three or four is quaint. <laughs> <laughs> but, but presuming that it does, Brian Fuller just walks on camera and is like, yeah, this isn't actually Hannibal Lecter, guys. Um He's actually Lee Pace's character from Pushing Daisies, and then the show just switches gears. Dramatically. I would really enjoy that, actually, because I love Pushing Daisies. Yes. Um, okay, I feel like there's not a whole... What if we had the guy from Pushing Daisies trying to catch Hannibal Lecter? Um, well, I mean, that would be fine. I like Lee Pace. He could play Will Graham very easily, because it's not a character who's particularly well-defined. No, they just, they just combine the universes. They just bring the Pushing Daisies universe and the Hannibal universe together with a crossover that no one ever knew they wanted. If, if anyone could do that crossover, I think Brian Fuller might be the guy. Possibly because I don't imagine Pushing Daisies coming from anyone else. But also, like, he does genre meshing fairly well. <laughs> um, anyway, Hannibal's going to be a thing. 
I am probably going to watch at least the pilot because I like I don't know which way I'm going to fall on the show. Uh, I feel like it's achingly inessential, but it's coming from uh, an artist who I enjoy and it's got an interesting cast. Um, so I will probably watch this. I'll probably review it for the site. Uh, we may never talk about it on here again. Anything else you guys want to say about it before we move on? I'm down to watch it. I'm always interested in seeing when networks like, you know, big networks like ABC, NBC, Fox try and put like something kind of dark and gritty on TV because that's what's cool now. Thanks, Walking Dead. <laughs> like, like the following, I watched the first episode and said, no, thank you. But I mean, <laughs> you know, if they keep trying, maybe one of them's got to be good, right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> no, if that's <laughs> maybe. <laughs> <laughs> We have such the let's mark ourselves down as not all that cautiously optimistic on this one. <laughs> um, and why don't we move on, Alex? Why don't we go over to you? What do you got for us this week? Well, I was watching TV the other night, and I Whoa. saw what? something that was crazy. It was what? a commercial for DVD to go, which is basically a knockoff Redbox, where this guy was telling me that I could own my own DVD to go which sounded like a complete scam. Uh, this guy did not look trustworthy at all. <laughs> but um, it just got me thinking, like... Are you is, sure he was in your TV and not just in your living room? Is, there's a number <laughs> of things that he could have been. But um, <clears throat> this it got me thinking, like, is that, like... Like, how far can you push something like that? Where... Uh, who's going to buy from my red box? Where would I put my, my DVD to go? Like and can you clear this up a little bit for me? Is this like a red box machine, like those vending machines that have DVD players? Yeah. Like it's saying it doesn't have a DVD player. Or sorry, not a DVD player, but just DVDs in there. Yeah, it's like a vending machine. I actually, yeah, I actually used one uh, once uh, in a hotel, and it, it basically, yeah, it's just a whole bunch of DVDs are in there, and you put your credit card through. And then it's like, all right, here's your movie. So it's offering to sell you the vending machine full of DVDs. I don't, uh, you know, I didn't really look into it that much. I don't know if it comes with DVDs or you have to supply your own. Maybe but, it's like for places like hotels. Like I mean, maybe that's who they're marketing to, not necessarily the home consumer. I would think so. But I that seems like a Alex, market that you don't do on TV. I would like you to answer the questions that you posed. Where would you put your red box if you bought this DVD to go? I would put mine down by Vanderbilt because that's where I live, and that seems like a decent place for it. But this just this just seems like a terrible. This seems like a way that because like you would have to be property that you own, presumably. So if you were to put this thing on your front lawn, this just seems like a way to just gather everyone you don't want on your front lawn to your front lawn. That thing I don't trust people who use those Redbox machines. <laughs> Get Netflix. What is wrong with you? Yes, yeah, that's where I wanted to take this conversation. Really, it was like. They're trying to push this thing where even Redbox is kind of on the fence about whether it's going to succeed or not. Everyone's going towards streaming. Have have anyone else used a Redbox? Like I use it occasionally because I like to get Blu-rays rather than streaming because the uh, compression drives me nuts on streaming. You can get Blu-rays from Netflix. Yeah, I know, but uh, that's I already have the lovely bones sitting for like two months, and that's the cliche about getting DVDs from Netflix is that they sit there for months and months, and you that don't watch true. them. Why true. do you have the lovely bones of all the yeah. movies you could possibly Netflix? Because I almost have seen all the Peter Jackson movies, and I like to, you know, round out my catalog. And you know deep down you don't want to watch the lovely bones. Oh, yeah. It's, <laughs> it's going to be there for months. But I've, I've done that before, and eventually, like, you either, you either break and force yourself to watch it and do not enjoy it because you were literally forcing yourself, 
or you just send it back. That's my well, problem. I actually have two Netflix DVDs. I have The Deer Hunter, which I have never seen, which is like one of those movies oh, that it's pretty good. It's like how could I have never seen this? I haven't. I, I haven't have seen it either. It's, it's I have good. that, and I have um, Movie Club. I really want to see, and I haven't seen. And they are sitting on my mantle right now, and they've been there for. But like, out of sight is supposed to be so good. How have you waited this long to watch it? I also I don't know. Out of sight, it's on I think it's because it's the, the physical DVD. I've been programmed. Send that back and just add it to your instant queue. It's on instant. Is it really? I think so. That's how long. That's that's how long I have. Netflix I would love it if you if you uh, streamed out of sight while it was sitting on your mantle, not, uh, like on DVD. <laughs> have, so have none of us seen out of sight? No. No. Okay. We might need a new movie. Club movie. <laughs> well, yeah. I have a new movie club movie in mind, but maybe it should oh. be out of sight instead. <laughs> I think that would be a good one, unless Jordan, you want to you want to do yours. We can all um, throw out my, ideas. I can it. always do mine later. Why don't we just yeah. look? We haven't got to the segment yet, but we're gonna do out of sight. <laughs> yes. I'll announce I'll announce it at the end of the show, but <laughs> we're gonna do out of sight. No tension. And it is on Netflix. Is it on Watch Instantly? Yes. Wow. That's better. That's how long I've had the DVD. <laughs> it, it has become Watch Instantly. Um, okay, well, so, Alex, you were asking if any of us have ever used a Redbox? Yeah, I just want to know about more people's, you know, how they watch movies. Like, you know, you go out to the theater, or do you only stream or only use Netflix? Like, I use Amazon uh, streaming a lot now. There, there, I think, was maybe one or two times I used Redbox, um, and it was always based around a movie that had come out so recently it wasn't on um instant streaming or anything like that and just something i really just wanted to see i actually don't even think it was me i think it was my housemate and we'd bring home a movie from redbox and we'd watch it just like something that very recently come out my which is i think the only advantage that a physical redbox or even getting more archaic right now a blockbuster if any of those still exist around has any kind of bearing and just like if there's a movie that just came out that you want to watch now that's like the single the sole purpose for them my reticence uh, with Dropbox is no, basically no. Redbox. 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 Sorry. Dropbox is its own. We love set Dropbox. Of problems. Really. Yeah, we love Dropbox. Yeah. Dropbox is fine. Uh, my re- my reticence with Redbox is that the selection is so limited. Like if I if I go to a Redbox not knowing that they have the movie that I want, then basically my choices are like one of three recently released Katherine Heigl movies. Um, and I don't want to watch those. So like, if why, I'm, why, I'm, why would you choose? They're all good. <laughs> they're all fantastic. If, if I'm going to go all, like, get, get them a movie, all. I can get it on either from Netflix, uh, which yes, will take a few days, but I'd rather pick a movie that I'm going to want to see and wait like a day or two, or just stream something while I'm waiting for that evening, or, you know, go to my own movie collection and watch something, then go to Redbox and risk the fact that chances are they're not going to have anything I care to see. I mean, most of the time when I use a red box, I'm like on my way out of the grocery store and I'm like, oh, you know, check out what's going on over here. So it's not like it's not like I leave my house, go to a red box and say, fuck, they don't have the movie I thought I wanted. Is that how this commercial that you saw started off? It would have been a lot better. (laughs) Has this ever happened to you? And then they just like he just like punches babies everywhere around him. My problem is if if I if I ran a red box, I would like I would do it like I would go bankrupt immediately because what I would do is is fill it with a bunch of movies that I feel like people should see, and then people would come to my red box and be like, I don't want to watch eight and a half. I'm going home. What is this three colors trilogy? What the fuck is yeah. this? 
It'd be, yeah, like, like a lot of, you know, semi, not even really that obscure foreign movies, um, just, like, foreign movies, because people should see more of them, and, like, um, you know, great movies, and people would be like, wow, I don't want to watch something in black and white, or I don't want to watch something with subtitles, and they would leave, and I would go bankrupt. I hate people. I feel Let's like, I feel like Redbox is the last, the last, uh, thing left of the rent-a-video generation. That's going to be left. I mean, to and be I think honest, pro- it probably still exists for people who are still in that mode, and probably older people who aren't used to, uh, who who aren't ready to completely give up the uh, video store. Because this is like a mini video store without the greasy kid behind the counter. Yeah, but also the box anyone is great. Close to the level of selection. No, I mean. I mean, I've been to some pretty fucking dire blockbusters my in my thing day. Is like, yeah, I used to go to Blockbuster when it was a thing, you know, 10, 15 years ago. And they often didn't have the movies that I wanted there. But they had enough movies that, like, oh, they don't have the thing I want to see. But they do have, like, five or six other movies that I should probably see at some point, And that sounds You know what, though? Blockbusters, they would have – they would never have what I wanted, but they'd have 500,000 copies of of some shitty movie Air that no one would see. love dogs. Yeah, they'd have 50 million copies of that on the wall. Yeah, that's true. But I mean, like, they had enough movies, you know. If if Redbox had like two thousand movies, or I don't even know how many are in a blockbuster, but like, you know, a, a sizable number of movies, then I probably still wouldn't use it because I have Netflix. But I could see why I might like go there and you know browse and find something that I might want to see. But it doesn't. It has what like Alex? How many would you say are in one? The ones I've seen are usually like it's like three or four. Uh, you mean how many movies are in a red yeah, box? How many movies are in a red box at any given time? I'd say probably in between three and five hundred. Five hundred? Yeah, maybe. Are there are red boxes that are that big? Well, I mean, they co- the way that you get a red box is it's basically in the very thin like DVD case, so it's not like a full DVD case. You can stack those things up to the sky. No, but I I I assumed they had like thirty copies of whatever movie they have in there, you know, and they have a few movies. No, nah, the selection is that large. I mean, I don't say the selection is that large. I'm just thinking, like, multiple copies of the same movie, Blu-ray versus DVD copies, you right, know, no, stuff like that. Right, no, but I mean, like, that. how many different movies, not oh, how many okay. um, different titles. Okay, yeah, let me think. That's probably more close to in between 30 and 40 at any given time, most yeah, of which you don't want to see. more than I was assuming. Well, yeah, obviously, I mean, most of them are movies I'm not going to want to see because, like, they're – you know, whatever box office schlock. But yeah. that's like that's true of Blockbuster back in the day as well. It's like they had like Samson or Chris, I think it was. They had like 50 million copies of Must Love Dogs. I mean, the uh, thing for Redbox for me is that it is like I am considering dropping my Netflix like DVD and Blu-ray uh, like, you know, subscription to just go instant Netflix and get Redbox movies. Wow. I mean, they have, you know, perks of being a wallflower, Taken 2, Pathfinders, House at the End of the Street, The Help. They have the perks of being a wallflower. You know, really big, big stuff, big stuff. I just like, I, there's so much on Netflix is, that Netflix has that is not streaming that it would terrify me to drop, uh, to drop disc because most of what I use Netflix for, currently not, currently I, I, leave the dvds with my parents because i don't have time to make good use of it while i'm in law school so i just use streaming at the moment but like this summer when i when i am you know working i will use the netflix dvds a lot and i will use them to see movies that are not streaming yeah Yeah, the good thing about the dvds is that it's it's like a guarantee you're gonna get your movie because in terms of dvds they really have everything pretty much just everything that's the thing that's kept me on but they have virtually everything i've ever looked for on on dvd 
I mean, the only thing that's that that's the only thing that's stopping me is that they do have all these re- like a good number of obscure movies that I want to see. But I mean, I'm getting closer and closer to just going Amazon streaming for all that. Does Amazon stream everything? If you want to pay for it, I mean, I'll pay you know three or four bucks to rent a movie uh, on Amazon if they don't have it on their Prime Instant. But if you have an Amazon Prime account, then they have a large number of free movies and free TV shows to stream. I have never streamed anything from Amazon. Uh, Chris or Sam, have you? No. Yeah. It's all right. It's all right. <laughs> That's, I, mean, I mean, like, I know I know people who do this. I've just never done it. Um, and I don't really know why. Like, I like I use Amazon for a lot of other things. There was I, a day when I was like, I really want to see Arthur Christmas, but I don't want to leave my house. Oh, wait. Amazon. <laughs> I really want to see Arthur Christmas. We don't need to talk about the mood I was in at that day, but... Um, all right, well, I'm let's... assuming Edge of Suicide. <laughs> and Arthur Christmas brought me right back, and I'm kicking. Go life. Yeah. It, it, you it choose life. You humanity. Choose life. Well, I think we should probably move on, but uh, I, I guess there are lots of different ways to see movies. <laughs> I'm trying to wrap this up in thanks a coherent way. Thanks for wrapping this segment up in a nice little bow, Jordan. <laughs> really helpful. Uh, I'm sorry, listeners. Um, Sam, we're going to move over to you, so let's talk. What's your story? Um, more television fun. And hey. another person you can see on Netflix Watch Instantly, Kyle Chandler on Friday Night Lights. Um, it's been announced Kyle Chandler is joining the Showtime series, The Vatican. And that is a show that will be executive produced by Ridley Scott, and at least the first episode will be directed by Ridley Scott. So I feel like that's enough to get a lot of people are very excited. And basically uh, Chandler will play a progressive uh, Cardinal from New York. And he's going to be dealing with the seedy underbelly. That is the Catholic church in the Vatican. And I think this judging from just these two people attached to this project, I have very high hopes, not even cautious optimism. I have reckless optimism. (laughs) Um, I think this comes from a long line of Showtime series that I haven't had any interest in seeing, um, just in terms of like the, the historically, I mean, the Borgias is sort of basically the same thing, but this is going to be modern, right? Yes. Um, and you know, they did, uh, I don't even remember with the King, that King Henry show that everyone loved that I didn't watch. There was a show about King Henry VIII that I didn't watch. So I feel like this comes from a, a, a tradition of, uh, Showtime shows that I don't care about. But I like Ridley Scott. I like Kyle Chandler. So I'll well, I think both. Of, I mean, both of those shows obviously they, they're period pieces. Right. And I think they were kind of like um, costume drama porn, basically. I, I seem to have the fact that this is Ridley Scott and it takes place in the present day, and it's. I, I seem to have, I have more hope for it than it's just that. I, yeah, I, I, I'm I'm hoping that it's going to be different than that. But for some reason, like the premise, perhaps because it's almost exactly like the Borgias. Uh, just sticks in my in my mind like I hope it's not another show that's just kind of costume porn just set in the modern day. <laughs> um, but it's Ridley Scott, so it probably won't be. Yeah, and I don't see Kyle Chandler being associated with that type of show. Um, it's going to star uh, Matthew Good, who was in Watchmen. He played uh, Ozymandias, mm-hmm. who destroyed the world with. Well, not your spoiling Watchmen. For some, for some reason. 
<laughs> oh, I'm not spoiling the Watchmen. I'm spoiling the Watchmen movie. Well, yeah, which is like no one cares. <laughs> <laughs> if you're I mean, upset that Sam spoiled the Watchmen movie, I'm sorry. <laughs> there's a four-hour version of that movie out there. Four really? hours. Really? I would Watchmen. probably, like I would probably there, see it or? if it was because it was going to be released at some point, and I was like, I'll probably watch that. Like, it's out there, and they released it. It has like that whole cartoon of the. Oh well, they Black released. Black thing. Pearl? Black Freighter. No. Yeah, Curse of yeah. the Black Freighter. Yeah, that, um, that's like it, cut into the movie now. I See, I would watch that. Um, and I say that as someone who was not a huge fan of the Watchmen movie. <laughs> I want to go back to it. I want to revisit it. Although I haven't yeah. watched any of the extended Lord of the Rings movies, so take of that what you will. I would I would definitely watch the extended Watchmen. I I mean, I wasn't a huge fan of the movie, but like it's it's something I would definitely give a look to. Maybe we'll movie club it someday just to, just to see what it's like. But yeah. I, can't, I, can't, I, I, I definitely was not sitting there thinking, man, I wish this movie was two hours longer than it is. <laughs> I bet you it'd be really good then. Maybe it is, though. Like, think of Almost Famous. Um, the director. Because, my, I mean, my problems with this, so my problems with this movies weren't just that there was things missing from the book. It it was just like it the, the way it was done. What is what irked me more? Yeah, that's and, I'm, and they changed the ending. So the fact that there would be two hours more of it, it's like okay, well they got more stuff from the book in there, I guess. <laughs> it's still, like it's not stuff I necessarily enjoy. I don't know. Maybe someday we'll get to that. Um, that is going to be a long way away. We already got, have two movies stacked up on our. We've got very list, far off, off the track week. of the Vatican. Uh, the ultimate show, cut is two hundred and fifteen minutes long. Oh, that's not four hours. That's like three and a half hours. <laughs> I'm, so, I'm sorry for misleading you. That's so much easier to watch. Um, I'll do that right now. No, but what, what I think was, interesting. How long was Apocalypse Now Redux? Redux is r- roughly the same, I think. Um, it's like 205 minutes or something. Yeah, and everybody loves Redux, right? I don't. Exactly. I, I just really like Apocalypse Now. Yeah, I, I love it. I like Apocalypse oh. Now for what it is. It doesn't need to be... Uh, Redux. Well, Redux... I don't know if I, ever, I haven't seen the Redux. Um, and I understand that they were thematically resonant and, like, you know, worked with the same... Uh, you know, the subplots added, I guess, thematically to the movie. All I know about Redux so, is that they added that, that like, French people scene. scene. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, like, it's it's really long, and I understand how it's relevant, but it's not, like, vital to the movie working. <laughs> In a way that I think the almost famous director's cut, which is my gold standard director's cut, is sort of vital to like the the original kind of almost famous doesn't doesn't work as a movie as well as the director's cut does. I see. I haven't seen the director's cut of that, you and haven't... I know you swear by it. Are you sure? Because haven't we watched it together? I don't think so. maybe we have. It, it's it would have been exciting. It probably would have been like freshman year or something. Because I don't I don't watch the original since I saw the director's cut. Um. Anyway, what I wanted to talk about before we move on from the story is this sort of – I think it's still fairly new phenomenon, though it's happening more and more regularly, of the sort of celebrity auteur director coming in and directing the first couple episodes of a series and sort of stamping their visual style on the series, even if they don't stick around, which I think is something that has happened a lot in the last year or so and is interesting to me. Well, I think it's a good sign for television, right? Yeah, I agree. I, the, the, there is, I think, the line that – you know. TV is kind of like this under art form is kind of disappearing really quickly. And we first saw that when we see kind of big movie stars, guys like Alec Baldwin or something come in and do 
uh, a television series. And at one point that was thought as like slumming it, but now it's become more and more accepted and even something that's kind of prestigious. I was actually, I'm watching the Sopranos right now and there is an episode where a, um, a television writer tries to pawn his Emmy award at a pawn shop. And the pawn, the pawn guy is like, I'll give you like $15 for that. Nobody wants an Emmy. It was a particularly masturbatory episode, I think, but uh, it was. Yeah, it was I just think I remember that. It was like, okay, th- I, as soon as I knew there was a there was a television writer in the episode, I'm like, they're going to be like masturbating this entire episode. Well, the, Sopra- the Sopranos, like the one thing about the show that it consistently failed to do well was anything involving Hollywood. Like it kept going back to that well, and it was always like, I okay. <laughs> yeah, the Hollywood well, it was not bad, but I, I was more struck by the fact that Emmys didn't matter in that universe, and of course now. Emmys are, they're not Oscars, but they are much, much, much closer than they were, say, 10 years ago. Definitely. Um, so I think it's a good thing. Ridley Scott? Yeah, he's directed I, I one agree. One or two good movies? I, I think he's directed some movies that I quite love, yes. <laughs> a few. Uh, yeah, just a few. He's got potential. He's Yeah, he's okay. We'll, we'll watch him and see. I mean, he, he did direct Robin Hood with Russell Crowe. <laughs> I don't think he's Probably ever going to Opus. Um, Francis Ford Coppola directed Jack. Hey, don't you dare rip Jacks. <laughs> I'm just saying, like, sometimes they uh, they mess up. Everybody's got a few. I know Francis a few Ford people Coppola with Jack disease. More bad movies than good. And they Sam, are adorable college seniors. Sam has Jack disease. <laughs> I have Jack disease. I'm three years old. <laughs> and Robin Williams. And I am Robin Williams. I'm covered in hair. <laughs> okay, uh, once again, we're falling off the rail. So uh, anyone else have anything to say about the Vatican? I love off the rail. And I, I, I'm excited about the Vatican. I'm not so worried it's going to be the Borgias. Um, but I can understand that fear because it is Showtime. And but Basically, you know, show, creative show Once time. upon a time, Showtime did have a bunch of good dramas, Jordan. What? Once upon a time, Showtime did have a bunch of good dramas. He heard um, you. When? What? They <laughs> have a bunch of good dramas. Dexter was good at one point. <laughs> they, yeah, they had one good drama for roughly two seasons. Yeah. And they had a bunch of shit that I like. Sometimes would give a chance and hate. Well, wait a minute, but you oh, but man. you still watch like Californication, and that's like dramedy. Uh, yeah, and it's bad. Like I still watch it. That doesn't mean it's good television. <laughs> I watched Weeds for a long time too, and it wasn't good television. So why why do you watch it? You must enjoy it on some level. Californication. Yeah. Yeah, I watch Californication because usually there are, there are one or two episodes a season that approach the level of farce um very well, and like the the show usually is like a bunch of sort of misogynistic, uh, like, fratty sex gags that I don't really like. But one or two episodes of the season, they do something that's quite clever and complex and weird and funny. Um, and I haven't, like, I haven't seen the last season or two of that show at this point, but I will watch them at some point because there are usually enough moments of, in, a, in a season that work for me to keep me watching. Um, and occasionally it's, like, very self-aware about how terrible its characters are. And when it is, it can be pretty good. Um, so yeah, I watch, I watch Californication, but I don't that think- That's the most qualifiers I've ever heard for being a fan of something. <laughs> well, I, I don't even know if I'd go so far as to call myself a fan. I'm a viewer of the show. <laughs> You're a devoted viewer. Who's not uh, so devoted the last couple seasons. Yeah, I'm, I'm a devoted viewer. I, uh, I'm, I find the show when it's on demand or on DVD, and I watch an entire season in like a couple hours, and then I kind of forget it. Like, I couldn't tell you what happened during the last season of the show that I saw. Um... Sort of like how I watched the entire third season of The League yesterday. Uh, the League is a better show, let me let me say that. Um, but I watched the entire third season. I thought, okay, that was hit and miss. And I will probably not be able to tell you what happened in a little while. And I don't know that I'll care. 
that's kind of just the show it is, though, and it's yeah. fine for and that. I, I that's think. the Californication is as well. Um, yeah. But yeah, I don't think Showtime has ever been like a go-to place for great dramas. <laughs> but it, but can it be? Can it become that? Yeah. AMC kind uh, of became AMC, that out of Yeah, I was just going to say the same thing. It could become that, but that's not its brand right now. So I haven't idea- watched I, any I, of it, but Showtime my, does I'm have Homeland. More, I feel like our difference is, is you're going with the history of the network, and I'm more attached to the people involved with the and project. Alex just said it does have Homeland, which we both think is a you know a good show. Oh, yeah, Homeland. Uh, <laughs> I forgot that was a show. It's a show. It's on Showtime, and it's good. The fir- the you forget it's on Showtime. Great. Yeah, I forget it's on Showtime. I don't forget it's a show. I think of it as... Uh, as an an HBO show that just happens to be on Showtime. There you go. Stop uh, your racism against Showtime. You are a racist. Well, maybe maybe Homeland is is hearkening a new era, and maybe it will be really good. And either way, it's Ridley Scott and Kyle Chandler, so we're probably all going to watch it. So why don't we move on now? <laughs> Never. Chris. Tell us about your news story for the week. Uh, my news story for the week is a comic story. Surprise, surprise. Um, and it is that uh, Jeff Johns, it has been announced, will be in the month of May leaving uh, Green Lantern. Uh, he has been writing He has been writing the title for the past eight years. This is one of the longest uh, superhero runs on comics that's still going on to this day. I think there are only two other runs of this length still going. Uh, and he's been a very prolific writer for DC. He is most definitely their go-to flagship writer. And Green Lantern is the book that he really made his name on. So it's kind of a big story for uh, both his career and for fans of the character in that uh, the character has really been synonymous with Jeff Johns for almost the entire past decade. And now uh, he's moving on to other projects that haven't been announced yet. And uh, the entire Green Lantern franchise is going to change hands to a new group of writers. So it's kind of a very interesting time for DC Comics because um, Jeff Johns kind of did the impossible in uh, making Green Lantern DC's second most popular franchise. And until the um, absolute momentum killer of the Green Lantern movie kind of dimmed people's enthusiasm for the character, uh, Green Lantern was probably DC's best-selling comic right behind Batman for a very, very long time, and Jeff Johns was the reason why. So he's leaving, and uh, I'm, I'm, very, I'm kind of sad to see him go. I mean, it's part of me kind of understands that it's time. I mean, it's, it's been a long run, so I understand his decision to leave, but um, it's one of those positions where it's I, I could see this being a rough transition, having not experienced another voice on green lantern for so long both for fans and for the company itself yeah um i've read john's run so i'll i'll weigh in for a minute here and say i think it's like it started to show its age in the new 52 um and really a little bit before that i can see that um, yeah, I, I think right after Blackest Night, it started to show its age. Yeah, like that was that was the epic he'd been building to, yeah. and then I think he's done a good job of like the, like the plotting in the New Fifty Two has been like this is sort of what the the entire run was building to even beyond Blackest Night, the idea of the the struggle with the Guardians. Yeah, um, and I think that like thematically works for me, and I think it's like the plotting works for me, but the execution of it hasn't really been working for me all that well to the point where I'm like I'm not that into the title at the moment. Um, so shaking it up and throwing it to someone else maybe will be interesting, but probably will be a chance for me to jump off the book. <laughs> yeah, I could see that happening. Um, I mean, DC hasn't been very creative in terms of 
who it puts on new books and new projects. It's it's been a while since I've been really excited about a new DC launch. So I I could see being very nervous about well, maybe not so nervous, but just ready to maybe drop the book for a little while. I think I'm with you on this. Yeah. So that's I mean that's where I fall unless I mean I think there are a few names that would keep me on the book, but otherwise yeah. I'll probably leave. Yeah, I think I feel the same way. Um anything from Alex or Sam on this one? I have got nothing. No, not really. Fair enough. All right. Well, goodbye to Jeff Johns. Um, maybe we'll do uh, a brief segment on that once his final issue ships, because we like to do things that honor long runs in comics, and I'm I think that's a good idea as a rule. So um, for now, we're going to close down the news roundup. This has been a, a long and sort of discursive news roundup. We're going to close it down and let's talk a little bit about girls. Um, Sam, like why don't we start with you on this one? <laughs> yeah, who are you guys seeing right now? Oh, clever. <laughs> I mean the television show, you guys. <laughs> yeah, fun. <laughs> that was pretty good, actually. That was a pretty good impression of that thing from uh, The Price is Right. Um, so, girls, people love talking about this show. I love reading about this show because it seems to provide endless fodder for think pieces from television critics and people who are just plain bored. Uh, this last week, um, I think, I believe it was called another man's trash has, has, um, has Hannah finding her way into the arms of, uh, Patrick Wilson, right? That's who Patrick Wilson. That is him. Yes. (laughs) He's, he's, he plays a 40 year old doctor who lives in a giant, beautiful house in Brooklyn all by himself, surrounded by hipsters. And the episode kind of chronicles uh, a few days they spent together, their sexual and emotional exploits. This episode seems to have garnered a lot of conversation. I think a lot of people are talking about, you know, people bring up whether this was a dream, which kind of is a little bit insulting um, because people think, oh, nothing like this could never, ever happen to Lena Dunham's character. I would argue that it could. Um but either way, I think it, it sparks a lot of discussion because it does deviate from the normal structure of the series. This episode almost completely focuses on Hannah and this new character, Joshua, who I don't think we'll probably ever see again. Uh, there was a little bit of Ray in the beginning, but that was that was just very, very little bit just to set up the show. Uh, I want to know what you guys thought of this episode. It seems to be very seems people have opinions all over the place, but that seems to be par for the course yeah. uh, with girls. Jordan, I'll start with you. What did you think of this episode? I thought it was very good. Um, in fact, like that and the, the week before uh, were my two, are, have been my two favorite episodes of the season so far. So I think the season's really started to take off and it's been great. Um, I like I don't really understand as every time we talk about girls, I find myself saying this. I don't really understand what was controversial about the episode um, other than that it changed the structure which is something that I feel like we should admire in a television show when they when they're willing to play with things a little bit and do something different. Um, I'm not sure controversial is the word. I think a better word I think Chris used it before we started was that it was polarizing. That's true. It wasn't necessarily controversial, but I think a lot of people really didn't like the episode, and I think a lot of people really like the episode. And I've re- well. like I've read a lot of, of pieces on the episode, and I haven't read any of the ones that are that are negative about it. Not from like censoring myself. I just haven't like the critics that I tend to read liked it. Um, and I liked it. I haven't but, read anything about the episode, so is there any, like, do any of these uh, think pieces about girls really stand out that you think I should go check out? 
Uh, me or Sam? Both. I think I think Girls is always interesting to read about. So if you like reading television criticism, there are several good TV critics that I would tell you to read about. Read to be named does not do it, so I can't tell you who's writing about it for our site because we don't cover Girls at the moment. But uh, there are several good TV critics out there. Um, I would say read them. Uh, Todd Vanderwerf's doing it at AV Club. Um, Seppenwald does it as well, I think, right, right, Sam? Uh, Seppenwald does it does do it. I think uh, Matt Seitz at uh, New York Magazine yes. he did a good he did a good article about this episode specifically. Um, I don't know if I read his on this episode, but I do read uh, occasionally. They're all anyway. Those three are always good television critics. So <laughs> they're they're kind of the holy trinity right now. Yeah. But, um, um, I'm trying to think of other really good ones. Did Alyssa Rosenberg, read? who writes for Slate and Think Progress, uh, she wrote about this episode of Girls. Um, there was a story on Slate about it, which she kind of criticized. Basically, the, a, a, something that's come up a lot is, is this a dream slash, is it out of the realm of possibility that someone who looks like Lena Dunham could get a guy who looks like uh, Patrick Wilson? And I think a lot of the people who I were reading were saying that's basically beyond the point. And right. maybe the show was challenging you to ask yourself that. Um, I See, I don't think it was doing that at all, really. And that's – personally, I think that's part of the, the like the culture of girls' criticism, which is basically like criticizing Lena Dunham because apparently she's not considered attractive in our culture. Which, like, but I I'm saying like whether, whether the show was trying to do that or not, a lot of – there are a lot of pieces about that specifically yeah and i that, that, um, dream. that might have been a dream i mean i think the i think the people who say like this must have been a dream are kind of yeah. they're essentially saying the same thing because this would not happen in real life okay so i mean i suppose you can make the argument that since it deviated so much from the structure and what we know of the reality of the show you can make it like that but i think for the most part when people are saying it's a dream they're saying lena dunham isn't attractive enough for patrick wilson so this could not exist in reality which I disagree with. I think there's there, you might be able to make a case for it being a dream and talking about the structure of the episode. Yeah. Um, yeah. Although I, I think if it was intended to be a dream sequence episode, it did yeah, not I, do a I particularly mean, good uh, job. Ultimately, of it. ultimately, I don't think it was a dream. Um, there were there were parts that seemed dreamlike to me in certain ways. I think the the one I could most point out to is when Hannah has her breakdown on the bed and sort of just kind of like opens herself up to him and kind of just like complete, like just kind of pours everything out for a little while. I think that was the most dreamlike moment to me. But um, I think there were some other elements in there. I, 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 certain moments of the show, I think definitely stuck out to me as being more dreamlike than the actual conceit of the difference in attractive levels between these two people that hooked up. I, that wasn't like a giveaway to me or anything like that. I forget I forget where I read this, but I think someone brought up um, how this episode would compare to something in Louis, and I think sometimes Louis Louis has a tendency to have episodes that are very dreamlike, but they're not explicitly dreams. Yeah, and we don't necessarily have a problem with that because I think it's more built into uh, the normal, like the regular DNA of the show, in that it's a show that doesn't really have a regular structure to it. Yeah, um, but, but I, at the I same mean, time, but at the same time, like. No, I mean, things on Louie, they could be dreamlike, but they're not necessarily dreams. I See, and I was going to bring up Louie uh, as well, just in terms of, like, the fact that we're okay with some shows deviating from structure. and But I don't think Girls is so rigidly structured that it's, like, out of the question for it to do an episode that's completely different. I mean, last season did the return where Hannah went home, and it was a, it was an all-Hannah episode as well that was different in structure than the rest of the uh, season. 
I so, agree. So like, yeah. I, I just think that's a weird, uh, a weird way to criticize the episode, which like is sort of outside of whether it's a good episode or not. Just saying like it's too different from the rest of the show is strange to me. If anything, now I think this is almost part of the show's structure, and that there, I, I almost think that now from season three, I will expect there to be an episode that deviates from the rest of them and is more just very internally focused on Hannah. I mean, I think that like. Like when I hear that a show deviated from its structure, I think the paintball episode from Community. I don't feel like the return in this episode from Girls really deviated so much as just like took the story in a different direction to kind of explore these uh, sides of the characters that you might not get to otherwise. Well, I'm not even really sure that Girls has a has a structure in the sense that we're even talking about, right? Like, I think there were several episodes from season one and from this season so far that have done different things than we might call what a regular episode of this show would look like. Like, if you asked me to describe a regular episode of Girls, I don't know that I would be able to do it in a structural way that sets this episode apart in any way, except I mean, I think you could. I think it's, I think this, but I think the show is more, the show is typically, it's kind of like a, it's a, it's a straightforward structure in that it has multiple storylines going on at once, right? So a single episode will, will cut between, you know, take the, from earlier this season, it'll have, It'll have Hannah and um, Elijah doing cocaine and going to uh, the club, and then it'll cut, and then it'll intersperse going back and forth between Hannah and Marnie, who right. is going with, I mean, with Jonathan. And that's kind of like and, a standard storytelling thing for a TV yeah. show to do. But they also like last season had uh, Welcome to Bushwick, the episode where they all went to the the party and uh, Shoshana did what crack accidentally. Yeah. Um, yes. And that was like that was an episode that all took place in the same uh, area and like it had different storylines going on. But it was basically it wasn't a bottle episode, but it was basically sort of structured in a similar way. Sure. So I don't I don't think that necessarily. Um, the show has enough of a defined structure that it's like, you know, if this was elementary or, you know, any CBS procedural show that was doing something like this, that would be a huge break in structure. But I don't know if that's really the case here. Yeah, I, I, I would agree with that. And even if it is, I don't see how like how much I think. I don't know that I think of that as valid criticism. I'll say it that way. Um, like this was different. Isn't necessarily like, was it good different? Was it bad different? And if so, why is what I want to know. <laughs> well, I mean, I think I think it's valid to talk about why it's different. Yeah. I, I think it was good different. Because I, this, I, ep- really I mean, I, don't, I think I think it was good different, but I think I, I, I don't know if I can call it just bad criticism to just talk about how this episode was different from all the other episodes in terms of its structure. Well, no, I don't think I don't know if that's bad criticism, but it doesn't tell me whether the episode is good or not. Um, and like well, that's saying, true. saying that's it was the... different, so this was bad is bad criticism, I think. And that's like um, I have I haven't read any of these pieces, but that's the gist of what I'm getting uh, from the criticism from a the good pieces that I've read that have sort of responded to bad criticism, um, and just the general conversation that I've had seems to be that people who don't like it, that's one of the reasons. <laughs> I think that's fair. I mean, I think that kind of stems from people who just who really hate Hannah's character. And I think something, something I read about, I think people who, I think Todd said this on Twitter. It's basically people who like girls will really, really, really like this episode and people who hate girls. It's like kind of all the things people hate about it. I, I can see that being the case. Um, but I think most of the things that people hate about girls don't make a whole lot of sense to me. Um, which is not true of a lot of other TV shows out there, I think. Like, usually I can see why people like it and why people don't like it. Louie, for example, like, I love it to death. It's one of my favorite shows on television right now. 
but I also understand why it's not for a lot of people. I mean, I can understand why people wouldn't like girls. I mean, I've, some of the reasons people don't like girls are probably bullshit, but I can understand someone not liking the show, definitely. Yeah. I mean, it's. I think it comes down to that old argument again. Like, it's always this idea of everyone talks about, like, how, like, shallow and self-absorbed the characters are, and the response to that is always the point, that that's the whole point of the series. But at the same time, it's like, if that's okay to not like something like that. Yeah, I guess that's... Like, I can, that's I can understand that. Like, it, it's, it's one thing to not understand it, but it's another thing to understand it and still not like it, and I think that's valid, like a valid complaint. Yeah, I agree. No, I think that's that's completely right. Um, yeah, because I think there are a lot of people out there who just don't want to watch a show about characters they don't care about, and yeah. I understand that. <laughs> so that I, that I can get. Okay, fair enough. Um, that being said, though, I, I love this episode. I thought it was... Um, I, I, I really like every now and then just taking some time to just really focus on Hannah. And I really liked how vulnerable we got to see her in this episode. And just kind of, I, I thought the breakdown scene was incredibly well acted, um, very well written. And just, um, I, I, I felt the episode did an effective job of kind of like allowing you it's sort of like you kind of lost yourself in it, which is like they kind of lost these themselves in this weekend. And then at the end of it, it was just like the spell was broken and it's just gone. And I, I definitely felt that that effect was very much translated to the viewer. And um, I think it was a nice break from the previous episode where everything just kind of crashed down for these characters and the other shoe dropped for everybody after everything was going so well for them this season. So I think this was a nice interlude and a nice little refocusing on Hannah before we move into the ramifications of the dinner party episode. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, Alex, what are you thinking? I like, I don't know. I like the episode. I like the show. Um, I don't really, I've seen people talk about that it was uh, polarizing or controversial. And I also saw in that same like statement that, it seems to be crazy. So I just kind of ignored everything and I just, I don't know. I don't really get into like the inner workings of the show or like the criticism of the show beyond like the, uh, Lena Dunham five minutes afterwards making of girls things. I find those kind of interesting, but I just kind of watch the show. I, I enjoy it. Um, I have a I question. For you oh, guys, at, you no, keep this going uh, if you want to. But I have a question that's kind of different. Okay, um, um, in terms of this specific episode, can, let, let me just fold in my one criticism of the episode, and maybe the one criticism that I think is a little bit legitimate maybe for this season. Now, let's see if you guys agree with me or not. In that, um, I think the the Lena Dunham nude scenes are almost becoming. I've gotten to the point where it's almost, I almost see them as like in a joke that she is like playing on the critics of the show. I mean, there's like, there were, there's bordering on at least one an episode, if not two at this point. And some of them, I'm not really sure are that necessary. Like it gets to the point where I, I think we're starting to flirt with the line of gratuitous nudity at times, which I don't really have a problem with, but it's it sort of a HBO. thing where it's like, yeah, but <laughs> it, it's, it's gotten to a point where it's like, is she doing this because it serves the episode or is she having a laugh at the expense of the people who criticize the show for that same reason, which I don't think is actually the reason for it, but that's kind of what it's playing to me as. Did, do you guys 
see that at all, or am I just out on my own on this? I can totally see that, though. Um, I, I mean, I can see that, I think, but it hasn't, like... I haven't once gone like, wow, this is too much nudity in the episode, or like it's not serving the story. I mean, like the for example, in the in the episode where Elijah and Hannah do cocaine, she's topless, you know, wearing that mesh tank top for like half of the episode. But I think that it made sense and like was sort of serving the point about how ridiculous this whole situation was, right? I mean, you can um, make that argument for this episode where you know they're playing ping pong together, topless. But I mean, it just shows how open she is with this guy, right? But I mean, one thing that I would think at this point is uh does lena dunham kind of see herself as kind of the spokesperson of saying like no like these bodies are beautiful just be comfortable in your own skin that sort of thing because i feel like that's kind of a lot of well and i think i think that the that the show hasn't really hidden the fact that it is a lot of season two or i wouldn't say a lot some of season two has been a response to the criticisms against season one Oh yeah, um, the uh, the opening, the cold opening with Donald Glover was almost directly right. Like, and I mean, basically the whole Donald Glover story, I think, yeah. um, was sort of Lena Dunham saying, "Well, like you didn't like this thing about the show. This is kind of what I'm getting at there." Um, yeah. And so it wouldn't surprise me if it was partially motivated by a response to critics. But I like it hasn't ever bothered me enough, um, or it hasn't ever taken me out of the episode. Um, and yeah, it, I, I think that you just summed it with it up for what it does for me it doesn't really bother me but every now and then it takes me out of the episode right and i think that's that can be a problem i think that can be a problem and if it does start to take me out of the episode then i would see it as more problematic um sam what do you want me to answer about more about the episode or about the nudity (laughs) whatever whatever if you don't have anything to say about one than the other i guess um, I don't have much to add. I really like this episode. This is kind of a show where I was kind of on the fence back and forth about how I felt about it for much of the first season. Uh, this, The second season, I'm kind of more comfortable in the show, and I'm enjoying it a lot more, I think. Um, I think a lot of my problem, most of my problem with the first season when I was like getting frustrated, I think it mostly comes from the media around the show rather than the show itself. I kind of have taken issue with, you know, people are like, this is the voice of our generation. And it's, it's like, it's not my voice. You know, I don't, I don't think you can say it's the, like the voice of our generation or what represents, you know, people who have graduated college in the last five years. I think it's a very specific voice. I think it's Lena's Lena Dunham's voice. And it's about these very specific characters. And I kind of get, I kind of get frustrated when, it's kind of painted as like, oh, well, you're 24. You're the girl's generation. You're like this, right? And I'm like, well, you know, I have a job and, you know, I'm doing my thing. And I mean, I, I there, there are definitely some things about the show that I definitely identify with and trying to find your place in the world after graduating school. But at the same time, it's this is a show about people who have a ton of issues and they're not really, really great people at all. So I tend to take issue when people are like, oh, this is what your generation is. And I'm like, that's not entirely true. And I think if people, I think people mistake the fact of the fact that since this show is by a young person and by someone who is this age group and it's not done by a middle-aged man who tend to be most showrunners, they tend to say, well, this, she must be the voice of the generation because why else would she be doing this rather than she just has her own vision and this is her own show and her yeah. voice do you know what I mean? Like when there's a no, show I, I, about when when there's 
you know, curb your enthusiasm. No one's going, this is the voice of the 45-year-old Jewish man. No it one's saying that. would have been great, that. though, if that wasn't and, the case. But no, one's say, but, and no one says that about, you know, just shows about just middle-aged people that exist in the show. They exist within the universe of those characters. I don't think anyone said Bill Lawrence is the voice of, uh, you know, mid, early to mid-40s on Cougar Town. <laughs> exactly. That, that, that's my point. It's like right. those characters exist, and no one's going like, oh, Cougar Town. That's what everyone's like. I'm from that generation, right? And Everyone's think, in Florida drinking wine. And I think that's a that's a part of the bigger culture of criticism of the show, which is I realize, you know, usually I read uh, a variety of television criticism about most shows that I watch. And if they're, you know, I try to find a good and or a bad review if I'm reading several things about it. You know, Mad Minutes, you should like, oh, this is a polarizing episode. I found like the people who like it, the people who don't. And I've read both of what they they've thought um, just because, you know, I like to read criticism. But I have found that I've shut out a lot, like roughly the negative half of girls criticism because I have. I have a lot of problems with where it comes from, I think, and with most of where it's based, um, which is like because Lena Dunham is a young 20 something woman making the show. She is the voice of her generation or like she's the voice of femininity or, um, you know, we all it has to all be about her and whether she's attractive or not. And if you can even believe that this is happening and all of that, like it comes from a place that bothers me. And so I've sort of shut a lot of that out, I think, in my experience of the show, whether fairly or not. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, no, I, think, I, I think I think if you're a fan of the this, this show, it's very hard to shut out because it's so prevalent. But uh, I've tried to because it's like I, I don't think you're going to win over the critics at this point. I think the the battle lines have been drawn. There are people who love the show. There are people that hate the show. And you're not going to win over a lot of new fans as time going on, because there is something that just really rubs people the wrong way about this show. But going back to something you said a minute ago, Sam, like I, I really very much agree with everything you just said about how. Lena Dunham has kind of maybe unfairly been saddled with this idea of like the show being the voice of like a generation. And um, I, maybe that's part of the the visceral reaction to it in that people are just like fighting back saying like, no, this is not my experience sort of thing. But I, I also think a lot of it comes down to just the idea of like, she's just so young and so successful. And a lot of people find the show to just not be something they're interested in. I, mean, um, I think where a lot of the visceral hatred comes from. I mean, that's kind of like uh, an easy way to try and say that you understand something, right? Like, okay, I'm 50 years old, I watch girls, so now I understand what, you know, 20-year-olds are going through in yeah, this think, day and age. I think age. that's a large part of it, honestly. I think a lot of it is, you know, most of the critics of the show are going to be older Old, just generally older people, not necessarily old people or not necessarily middle-aged people. I mean, let's be real. But I think most of the people that are probably writing about it are old men. I mean, yeah, I think most of the critical community are Yeah, when we, when we talked about the, the quote-unquote holy trinity that you were saying earlier, Sam, of television critics, they're all men. Um, they're all, yeah, pretty much. And that's going to paint a show called Girls that's about 20-something girls like in a certain light, like any yeah. preconceptions that they have growing up like in whatever age they did, you know? Like how yeah, how girls are supposed to act. Right. Yeah, I think there's there might be more of a a feeling that this is going to have to be a broader representation because maybe they're just not as familiar with it. I don't know. I, I like I I don't see this. If you I don't want to compare the show to Sex and the City because I don't think it's really like Sex and the City in a lot of ways. I haven't seen a ton of Sex and the City. I have seen a ton of Sex and the City, and it is almost in every way that I can think of not like Sex and the City, except the thing is for women. With, <laughs> With Sex in the City, nobody was like, this is the voice of this generation of women. 
you know, this is this is women in their 30s. And it was also, I mean, it was created by a man too. Yes. So. <laughs> and but nobody, nobody was set, nobody was saddling that show with those types of expectations. And no, and I don't think critics were going like, this is who these people are. This is what people are like that are this age. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Any, the critics, uh, and I, I think that's what the critics, because the critics were, you know, roughly the same age as the people on the show. I think there's like a sort of disconnect between the criticism and a lot of media co- and just general media coverage around the show and that it's a show by a young person about young people and a and it is certainly a more realistic depiction of young people. So people are looking at it like this is the wire. This is just real life for all young people. And I think people there, you got to you got to look at them like television characters, like you'd look at any other television characters and that it is a singular voice and it, and these are girls in a specific situation. And I think the criticism of it being a show that's too white came from that because it's like, well, we live in a diverse world. And if you live in New York city, you live in a diverse world, but people were forgetting that maybe these specific characters only have white friends and there may be people who come from that sort of background that they would only have three friends and they would all be white. I'd kind of like the takeaway from this segment to be that Girls is closer to The Wire than Sex and the City, because I think that's funny. Um, and actually, possibly true. Uh, but that's a, that would be a longer conversation. I would yeah. definitely entertain that argument. Um, so, when you, uh, when you do pull quotes from this, uh, listeners, and put them on your dream board that you make for every episode of the Review Name podcast, make that one of them. Well, I was um, saying... You sh- we shouldn't look at this like this is a piece of journalism. And no, I, think I know. Our- I, I think it's a valid point. I just also think it's funny. Yes. Um, and like I said, possibly true, which is even more interesting. But we should probably move on because we still have to talk about the killer inside me briefly before we wrap things up. So, Chris. Jordan, is there a killer inside you? Uh, Do you want to talk well, about it? <laughs> Chris, why don't you kick this off before we talk about the killer inside of me? Um, I like that stupid this was your movie. Okay, so here here's my qualifier before we start talking about this. Um here we go. I had not seen this movie before. A friend of mine had highly recommended it to me. Um, no longer and... a friend. Yeah, I was just going to say, I'm still your friend. <laughs> yes. I'll tell you which friend it was after you the You should podcast. whip your friend in a, with a belt. <laughs> two, two, of you, two of you know this person, so we can, we can talk about that. Is it Matt Kennebuck? Let's, no, let's not, not call anyone out uh, live on the air. We'll talk about it after the podcast. Talk about it. But um, was so it I, <laughs> Sam, stop it! <laughs> yes, you tell me you, it was listeners are gonna love this. Anyways, so I didn't really know what we were getting into. Um, and that said, um, I I didn't really like this very much at all. Uh, this was this was not a great film. Um, I did not have a good time watching it. I thought a lot of it was very gratuitous, very unnecessary. And the story it told wasn't even engaging in the ways I think it tried to be or it could have been. So I think it failed on a lot of levels, but I think sometimes it's good to talk about movies that failed on levels because we do a lot of talking about what movies do right. So sometimes I think it's also good to discuss what movies do wrong from time to time. And I think movie club should, you know, hopefully do a little bit of both over, over the course of its life as a, as a segment on the podcast. Yes. We don't need to like every single movie we see on. Yeah. Definitely. So, um, I, I think that, uh, right, let, let me just kick this off a little bit, like go around, like, did, was this a general impression for everyone? Did, it, did anyone actually like the movie? No. Mm-hmm. I don't think yeah. so. But I, I do want to say before we all get into all like the horrible things about this movie, I want to say, I thought Casey Affleck 
Casey Affleck was pretty good. Yeah. Honestly. I, 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 uh, I don't know if I'd go so far as to say pretty good. I liked I liked a lot of what he was doing. I also thought he like he completely bungled the uh, narration, which is one of the problems I have with the movie. Um, that's not necessarily his fault, but it did it did kind of hurt my uh, impression of his performance. Yeah, I mean, I still I still th- I still think he was probably the best part of the movie. Oh, he was definitely the best part of the movie. Easily, <laughs> yeah. Um, actually, uh, besides uh, besides him, I'm a huge um, Elias. Cotillas fan. I was I was gonna say I I actually enjoyed not really enjoy, enjoyed is not the right word but um I had some fun with Bill Pullman's turn near the end. Yeah. Of the I, well, Bill I, Pullman was doing the Alec Baldwin you know thirty second cameo. Right, and like that was at that point in the movie I was like I don't care about anything that's happening and then Bill Pullman came on the screen and I was like okay I'm like yeah. all right. <laughs> it's always it. interesting when Bill Pullman shows up in something and is not playing like the typical bill pullman role like, I, I feel like, like the typical that. bill pullman role is kind of the creepy guy who might kill you might be a pedophile like i yeah, like I, an independence that's why the aliens attacked they were trying to save us from bill pullman <laughs> um lone star and Spaceballs, the dad in casper the president in independence day the pedophile <laughs> he was in the dad in casper he was the dad in casper yeah, that, that's how I see it. Like, I don't see him as the creepy guy. I see him as the dad. He's like, he's like, the, he's the dad of film. And who is the president but the nation's father? Yeah. Oh, God. Um, so anything anything else that people liked about this movie before we talk about the things we did not like? I liked the opening title sequence. I didn't. <laughs> Seems I, out of place for this movie. It was. It was extremely out of place. But I was watching this opening title sequence. I was like, oh, okay. I kind of like this. And then things went downhill from there very quickly. See, I feel like that's actually symptomatic of one of the largest problems I have with the movie. So I'm glad you brought that up because it felt like it was trying to do something that a lot of noir movies do with their title sequences. Um, and it just felt completely flat to me, like from the get go, like the music choice, the color scheme, everything about it felt like it was just done incorrectly. Um, so I saw what it was trying to do and I appreciated that. But I also thought that it was completely failing to do it in any way that that uh, was interesting or worked for me. <laughs> See, yeah, it, I, it, okay. I think this is a good point Jordan brings up, and it was something I was kind of thinking throughout the entire movie. It's that this movie wanted to be a thriller and was never really a thriller, and it wanted to be a noir, and it was never really a noir. And I think to really capture film noir, it's, it's as much about mood and feeling as it is about uh, just how it looks. Yeah, and I don't think it really delivered so much on either way. Um, yeah, I, I think it tried and failed both to look like a noir and to actually be a noir. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely true. I, I think it, I think it failed at trying to be a lot of things. I think it, the movie had a real identity crisis going through. It had a lot of things it wanted to be, and ended up being really nothing and just kind of very. Um, and I actually, um, one thing I know we'll talk about, and maybe we, I'll bring it up now and we can come back to it in a couple minutes, but uh, one thing that, that bothered me about it, we mentioned gratuitous nudity in uh, our girls' discussion, and we kind of came down on maybe it's not gratuitous or maybe some of us think it is and some of us think it isn't there. Yeah. Here, like, if the movie had worked better, I think the violence and the sex might have made sense, but because everything around them was failing, it felt like a large string of gratuitous sex and violence scenes, and like... Almost in a, in, a, in, a, in a way that came off as almost like deeply misogynistic because it's like 
The only things this movie almost came off of, I think it it definitely came off as deeply. Well, I was I was trying to give the movie a little bit of slack, but you're right. Like it it basically the only thing the movie felt like the only thing I felt like the movie seemed to enjoy was watching women have sex or get beaten. Um, Yeah, or both at the same time. Or yeah, and often both at the same time, and that. It was it was like the movie thought that I would be enjoying watching either of those things and the way that it was presenting them it was like it made me deeply uncomfortable for most of the runtime. <laughs> yeah, it, it after a while like it it didn't really it wasn't saying anything new. Like after about the second probably after the second sex scene, you kind of got the idea that this guy has some deep sexual issues. And then there were about maybe seven or eight more of them after that. And it did like a, it wasn't After even... a while, it was the same. It was the same scene over and over again, and it was almost, almost got the impression of like. It, it, to me, it sort of felt like there was somebody sitting in an editing room that was just trying to pad the time out of this movie, or maybe realizing that the story wasn't really working, was just maybe trying to titillate the audience to keep them invested in it throughout because it, the actual proceedings around it wasn't very interesting. Because honestly, you got the. I, I feel like. I saw the same montage of Casey Affleck and Jessica Alba having sex at least four or five <laughs> times throughout this film. And it, it, it was, the scenes just bleed together. Like, it was the same scene over and over again. It was just them fucking, like, four or five Also, times. can I say, Alba and Hudson were not particularly good at this. They were both, they were both, like, uh, like... Jessica Alba won a Razzie for this. You can see, um... Just from the fact that I think I think everyone on the podcast right now, correct me if I'm wrong, is kind of a noir nerd to a certain level. Yeah. Like we all love the, the the noir tropes and and the the genre of film. And you can see where Alba and Hudson are supposed to fall in that genre, and they're playing sort of well-worn tropes. Um, and neither of them seems to have a handle on quite how to play it in a way that's anything remotely interesting. Um, you know, Alba is uh, sort of like the hooker with a heart of gold type of character, um, except that. The movie doesn't give her anything that's sort of heart of gold, except that she kind of seems like she might be a sweet person if there was ever a scene in which she wasn't just having sex and getting beaten. Yeah, um, like, yeah I mean, which there, there really wasn't, to be honest. I think well, no, that's all that happens to her in the movie. Like the entire the entire time from the first time she's on camera, she is either having sex or being beaten, often both at the same time. I think with uh, women in noir, often they're on the receiving end of brutality, and certainly the movie got this. But I also think. Noir movies also gives women a certain strength and a certain, I don't know, a certain level of agency that other movies of that era didn't necessarily give women. Um, right, like, and I in, think this movie was just all about the the punishment women receive in noir movies and none of the other stuff. Like, I don't think we saw Kate Hudson in this movie outside of her nightgown outside of the bedroom until the last like until she's minutes. murdered. Yeah, basically until she's murdered. No, that, and I, you're absolutely right. Like, she was in her underwear or a nightgown and having sex with Casey Affleck in every single scene until the one time they didn't have sex when he killed her. Like, those are the two things that happened to her. That's all that happened to Jessica Alba, and they are the two female characters in the movie. Like, are there any other women in it? I don't think there are. There's the brief moment with the uh, the, the woman the woman. Oh, the right, the, the woman we yeah. thought was the mother that is actually apparently a babysitter, who also, all we see is her having sex and getting beaten. Yeah, by a 10-year-old. There is not a there's not a single scene in the movie in which a woman is not having sex and getting beaten that just that involves a woman. Oh, and, and the very disturbing is... scene of child rape, like or child molestation towards the the beginning. Yeah. Which was as out of place as it was disturbing, if I may. Uh Sam, you were gonna say something? I was saying that something that's interesting is that 
you know, of course, all the all the women's death in the movie was on screen, but I think half of the men who died in the movie died off screen and were kind of just like a one line. Oh yeah, he killed himself. He's dead now. Yeah. Yeah. The uh... and, and then they like wouldn't talk about it again. And like the women they... didn't just die on screen, but they were all uh, the only. I guess we don't know what happened to the babysitter mom character, but the other two women in the movie were beaten to death without the camera like moving away at all. Like you had to yeah. watch them be beaten to death. Um, Sam, I, I think you made the point that I that I uh, was hoping to make at some point very well when you said like. A lot of noir movies, you know, there's a lot of brutality uh, against women in noir. But one of the things that I like about the genre is that it always, you know, virtually always, I can't say always, but a lot of them is about giving women agency. You know, a lot of terrible things happen to them. And oftentimes they are able to get out of situations. They're able to take their vengeance. A lot of times they're masterminding schemes to help themselves out, which is, you know, good and or bad, depending on how you're looking at it, because the femme, the femme fatale trope, I think, cuts both ways. But... <laughs> I mean, and so, and, and I mean, I don't want to say like a lot of noir women are, I mean, almost always, they're almost always tragic figures. Things don't really work out for them a lot. Um, but I, I still feel like there was, there is still like a certain amount of power they have and they're not just, I mean, in this movie, they're basically just being fucked or punched in the face. Which I don't think really is yeah. the uh, the noir tradition. But the, it's, the, female, the female characters in the movie have, have very little agency. I mean, you can make the slight argument that uh, there is a a I think in turn both the hooker with the heart of gold and femme fatale was something that they were reaching for with Jessica Alba's character and that she was the one who came up with the scheme the blackmail scheme initially but that was just such an incidental beat like I almost had to like rewind and like rewatch that sequence of the movie because they just underplayed that so much it was just a line from Casey Affleck in the narration like oh she had a scheme to get us out of here sort of thing but it's all about him like enacting this like plan of hers, this idea of hers and co-opting it for his own means that the one like moment of power that one of the female leads has is just completely like backlined and sidelined and virtually ignored. And that's like, that's one of the things that I think was a huge failing of the movie in being what it thought it was, which is like, I, I had to say uh, Alba was the hooker with a heart of gold character because I think the movie wanted her to be the femme fatale. Yeah, and it just like it didn't work at all. Like even it didn't, rem it no. didn't remotely work that that was the that, that was the noir trope she was supposed to play. Like, because yeah, in theory she has this scheme that she's working on the, throughout the movie. Um, but in practice, Which they didn't they didn't do a very good job of it. Was anyone else a little bit lost about the what the scheme was? And I think I knew what the scheme. It was pre I thought yeah. it was pretty simple. It was just um, this guy wanted to run away with Jessica Alba, the hooker. Yeah, and Jessica Alba was saying that she would scam him out of money, and then she'd get money, or her and Casey Affleck would have money, and they can be happy together. And basically, right, okay. Casey Affleck just uh, Affleck just double crossed her and killed her and the guy and took the money. Yeah, well, that part obviously, but I I, I guess I was a little bit lost about um, how this the 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 guy who he kills had kind of entered into the picture. Uh, like, he was the one they Jessica. were getting the money from. Yeah, well, he was the one. No, who was he was in love he was the middleman, right? I thought I thought the no, he um, was in, he was going to run away with Alba. Yeah, he was in love with with Alba, um, and, oh. they, and they were going to run away together. Gotcha. What What's confusing to me is like how how the movie doesn't even seem to spend any time on the idea of how this scheme of Affleck's would work. Like, it doesn't really make sense that he kills Jessica Alba first, and then tries to frame her for the murder of the second guy. Like, 
Especially considering the fact that she probably would have gone along with him since she, the only thing we know is that like, I think one of her few lines of dialogue that isn't about like the fact that she's having sex or uh, getting beaten is that she's in love with Affleck. Yeah. I feel like he could have easily killed the guy first and then killed her and made it much more plausible. And like there's the, there's no reason given for him not doing that. And he does the same thing again later. Uh, I mean, basically his murder of, of Kate Hudson is for roughly the exact same purpose as his murder of Jessica Alba. And again, like, he probably could have killed her after he got rid of the uh, the hobo guy. But instead, no. Um, and it just doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Uh, I mean, th there's a whole lot of things that doesn't make any sense. And we, we've talked a lot about how this film has failed as a film noir, but I also think that more than a film noir, more than a thriller, um, it also wanted to be like a character dissection sort of thing. And I think that's where it failed the most in terms of trying to, like, Take Absolutely. you inside the killer inside me, like take you inside the mind of the killer, like somebody who was in the small town, just like really breaking down and just embracing his darker urges and sit thinking he can get away with it all. But I think they did a terrible job of putting you inside uh, the mind of Lou and making you kind of understand why what was making him do these things, aside from the fact that he had some like very fucked up um, sexual experiences in his childhood that made him associate sex with violence basically, and that's the, all they give you that's all the motivation they gave you and then basically like it was that like there's two flashback scenes you got and then this line about how he was like i just decided to see what i could start getting away with and it was that that was like the motivate that was one of the like almost all the extent of the motivation but like here's the thing is that might have worked right like what it, basically what the movie did is um, it gave us the most po reductive possible answer psychologically for why he was doing this. Like, yeah. oh, because this woman in his childhood made him do it to her and, like, told her that was what sex was like. And it's like it – was, it was so obvious that I was, like, rolling my eyes through that flashback sequence. Yeah. Um, but, like, I, I think uh, when you were talking about how he just said I decided to see what I could get away with, I think this movie could have done a more American Psycho type of tone and been like, he lives in a small town, he's the sheriff, he can get away with what he wants to a certain extent. And, like, that could have been interesting and could have been a de decent character study. But, like, it's, like, <laughs> instead we got a movie where Casey Affleck does a bunch of things that don't really make any sense. Yeah. And the only explanation we get um, in this, and you're right, I think the movie did think it was a character study of his character. Um, and the only thing that we get is basically, like, we watch him do things, and we get the most pat possible explanations for why he's doing them. Yeah, I feel like I, I, I didn't really know anything about the character by the end of the film, other than that, like, he has that, sexual deviant, deviant tendencies and started doing terrible things and then had to cover them up. Like, that's that's the extent of what I know of this character. Well, yeah, and it's not just him. I think it's – what I know about every character in the movie is what they did. Like, yeah. all I know is the things they did over the course of the movie. I don't know anything about them as people. Which weren't at all predict particularly interesting or unpredictable. There, there weren't really any twists to this movie. It was, like, very much a straightforward kind of, like, progression, progression – Sort of thing. I, and well, it, the twist was the end, which was a cheap, stupid twist. Oh, uh, yes. Yeah, we can yes, talk about like, that for a minute. So if you if you care to see this movie after how much we've ripped it apart, um, don't listen from here on out for the rest of the podcast, and we'll see you next week. Um, but go ahead, Sam. Um, basically, we think that he kills Alba in the beginning after repeatedly punching her in the head, but it turns out that she was actually just in a coma or something and alive the whole time, and it's, it seems that she has provided evidence against him, even though at the end, for some reason, she's like, I love you still. I didn't tell them anything, which is particularly fucked up. But um, 
so yeah so she's alive after they tell us she's dead and well it's just kind of like a cheap twist i, I think. mean technically they did tell us she was alive in that scene because they call an ambulance for her yeah but um, don't they say later they, that she died after yeah being the, the his the police chief tells him that she died right later they tell but like in the scene we so it's not i mean it's possible it's possible that she lived after that but it, it we weren't assuming she died after they told they told us she died right yeah. like and then yeah then the movie's like oh she's dead so that's well, I, the reason i'm pointing this out is like if that was the twist they were going for, it was also ineptly executed because it's like you could have just pretended she died in that scene and we would have thought she's dead and then later found out she's not. But instead, yeah, we could have just assumed yeah, she but, like, what, what was her coming back? Like, what did that give us? Like, that, that twist means nothing in the sense of like, it's not like it doesn't well, I think really it's supposed to be anything. some level of comeuppance for him, but it doesn't really serve that purpose because she's like apologetic and saying how much yeah. she loves him. I guess, so it I mean, doesn't I, even really work out that way. The only yeah, thing yeah, I got from it was it was trying to like sell his remorselessness, but they had already done that like well before that moment. This idea that he just felt nothing, like no remorse whatsoever for any of anything that he had done. So having him be confronted with her, not even being phased by it, and then killing her again, just really, it, it was an emotional beat that completely fell flat because it wasn't unexpected in any way. Yeah, it was unexpected that she was alive, but what did that really add to the scene? Um, I think, I think we're probably at a point where we should wrap up because we've gone longer than we like to go. Uh, so before we do, we've already announced it earlier in the show, but it's funny that, uh, we're, we're landing on the movie we are because, uh, this was actually my turn to pick. And the first thing that I thought was, I saw side effects the other night and I thought, why don't we do sex lies and videotapes? Uh, Soderbergh's first movie. Um, well, I didn't end up landing on it for several reasons because I've also seen it. Um, but now we're going to do a Soderbergh movie anyway. So sort of in honor of his last movie, Side Effects, being released, which um, maybe we'll, we're probably never going to talk about it. So, yeah, that's a movie. Um, the movie club will be out of sight. So in roughly a month uh, from now, you know, give or take, depending on when we can all get together on it, we will be talking about Out of Sight. Uh, it's on Netflix. Watch instantly. You can get the disc from Netflix. So go watch Out of Sight, and we'll talk about it next time. We're going to wrap up with the uh, Rachel Tardis Memorial Award for Best Performance in the Week. Um, Jessica Alba. Yeah, that is absolutely <laughs> not where it's going. <laughs> um, and we're going to, you know, this one I think is, is fairly obvious, and uh, it was a pretty easy cut-and-dry tabulation. So congratulations to Lena Dunham for winning the Rachel Tardis Memorial Award for Best Performance in the Week, both for actually giving the best performance in the week and for just – giving us what I thought was a very good episode of television that gave us a lot of interesting things to talk about. Should have gone to Harrison Ford, Jordan. Um, yeah, maybe or maybe not has. Harrison Ford. Oh, let's please not start he talking about that. He still got it now. in there. Um, before, before we actually shut down the show, I want to say uh, the Oscars are next Sunday, so you should tune in uh, to reviewname.com and join us for our Oscars live blog uh, that will be going on for roughly an hour or so before the show and throughout the Oscars. And next week's show will be our Oscar debrief show. So we're gonna, it's going to be a happy hour podcast. We're going to talk about the Oscars. We will hopefully talk about the Oscars slightly more than we talked about the Golden Globes on our Golden Globe podcast. That was also a happy hour podcast. But either way, we're going to talk about the Oscars next week. Um, so join us for the live blog at reviewname.com and join us here at the podcast for our debrief next week. Thanks a lot. Talk to you guys later. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.